You are listening to Radio Albion. Welcome to another edition of the Orthodox Nationalist. This is Matthew Raphael Johnson, and this is being recorded on the 17th of February, 2024. For those of you who have written me and I've yet to get back to, please, I apologize. I'm very much up against it here, and uh, I ask you uh, to be patient. I have a series of, of new subscribers to Patreon. I want to thank them. And encourage those of you who haven't signed up. Um, and as always, both on my site, uh, as well as um, the Orthodox Nationalist.wordpress.com, are ways to donate and assist me in many different ways. So for those of you, you know, who've written, I, I will at some point um, get back to you. I appreciate it, and at a minimum, I've I've read it all. Today, we're going to go over territory where we've been before, though not in this particular way. The Orthodox Nationalists is a reference to this series of, of lectures having to do the juxtaposition of both Orthodox theology and its Russo-Ukrainian or otherwise ethnic context which has been distorted and misunderstood for a very long time. People want to um, define nation or nationalism or, God forbid, philatism any way they, they, they choose. And that's out of the question. The title of this is Grecophilism versus Slavophilism or the occasionally tense relationship between Greek and Russian. Now, from a from the simple point of view of of interest, you know, the, the Russo-Ukrainian world is extremely important to me, but this should never be construed to demote Constantinople or Athens or even the Slavs of the of the Balkans. But over the centuries, the Patriarchate of Constantinople and others that used to be what we used to call the, the Byzantine Commonwealth have been have been tense. When I came back to the radio and, and launched this new set of uh, set of lectures um, in two thousand sixteen, I think my first lecture back was on philatism, what it means, and why the council. 1872 was not a legitimate one. Um, and But to start off here, we need to talk about what, what a nation actually is. You have two forces. On the one hand, the ethnographic unit 
a, a culture, a language, an internal vitality. On the other hand, you have natural law. Sometimes when you stress the ethnic uh, nature of, of civilization, you become a bit of a relativist because nations have different lights and different priorities. Natural law, though, has to do with human nature. And I've been dealing with that quite a bit recently with the Stoics, Rousseau, and, and Hegel. Those articles will be going up soon on Patreon, by the way. And you can't get them anywhere else. So those are two forces. It's natural law, human nature, those things that all human beings need to function and thrive, and how that's actually manifest day-to-day uh, -day in, a, in a society. When one of them weakens, the other one may remain, but it remains in a distorted form. Virtues, Rousseau said, and, and Hegel the same way, is inherently social. We can be personally virtuous, but that's a one-sided development. If, for example, the national principle falls away, and you're still dedicated to the truths of, of natural law, it becomes a, a amorphous abstraction, as real as it is. The organic system, the way it's normally used, refers to the juxtaposition of these two elements. But when virtue, natural law, are not manifest in social life, it is inherently distorted, no matter how much we rebel and live it, regardless of the society around us. There is no, there is no um, personal virtue unless it begins from the social whole, and not just any social whole, but the nation. Part of the makeup of human nature is religion, the existence of God and forces above human beings. However, that's conceived. Nations are defined in large part by the nature of its religion. Culture and cult are obviously related terms. And something in the Orthodox world where you have a new religious principle learned by one people from another, but still retain um, uh, the truth within an original interpretation. But the, but the universal truths remain exactly as they were before. Let me quote St. John Maximovich in, in a very famous essay called The Spiritual State of the Russian Immigration many decades ago. He says, Russians abroad have been given the chance to shine with the light of orthodoxy throughout the entire universe so that other nations, seeing their good deeds, glorify our Father, even as he is in heaven, and thereby gain salvation. Not fulfilling his mission, even humiliating orthodoxy with his life, our church abroad has two paths in front of it. Either turn to the path of repentance, having prayed forgiveness from God, be reborn spiritually, become able to revive the suffering of our homeland, or be completely rejected by God and remain in exile, persecuted by everyone until it gradually degenerates and disappears from the face of the earth. The Russian land, Russian saints are calling to us to be with them, as they are with us. They call to join the spirit of eternal life, and the whole world longs for that spirit. A restored world is needed for the whole world from which the spirit of life has departed 
and it all hesitates in fear, as if before an earthquake. Russia is waiting for the Christ-loving army, Christ-loving monarchs and leaders who will lead the Russian nation, not for earthly glory, but for loyalty to the Russian way of truth. Not unto us, not unto us, but to your name give the praise, the psalmist says. In repentance and faith and cleansing, may the Russian land be renewed and holy Russia be restored. So St. John clearly takes the ethnic point of view. This is never for the, the ego of a people. But as each nation has its own specific mission, um, that becomes its destiny and responsibility. I'm going to quote him. Now, some of you who've read my stuff on Violetism have heard this before. I'm going to quote St. John again. This is from the Russian Shepherd um, that was published, uh, obviously not uttered, but published in 1994. St. John says, Every nation manifests God's special gifts towards the Orthodox people. Each church carries out its mission in accordance with those talents. Therefore, every nation or ethnic group has its own church, and this division of church authority makes preaching effective. Therefore, the Orthodox Church allows for the establishment of new local churches and new centers of church line. So there are Russian and Slavic churches, and every nation has its own characteristics and its own spirit. That is the foundation of each local church. All of them together make up the one universal church and bring into it those characteristics and talents as the servants brought those talents for God. So God is worshipped with a pleasing combination of spiritual sounds and colors that adorn the church, the glory of God uniting all peoples. The Russian church brings its specific color and is seen as, a, as harsh sometimes compared with others. And Russian saints are examples. And of course it's true, the choir of saints, if you remember years ago I did a three-part lecture on Montenegro. Their choir of saints is the most militantly and violently nationalist because of course they're they're um, they're they're they were so vulnerable their entire universe was at stake without the ethnic principle and the ethnic principle vivified and in fact created by the church um, exposing to it natural law for those people who have gone away from it we talked about that in the Rousseau uh, thing it's only that spirit that principle that has allowed them to fight the Turks, or the Greeks, for that matter. Now, a long time ago, and, and of course, this, there's no way this could be exhausted, but I came up with a few ingredients that are very important in identifying the concept of a nation. The first thing is that there's a, a, the political community is based on their own sense of reciprocity. It's the array of rights and duties integrated within a, a community. These are not abstract. Abstractions, in fact, are the core revolutionary doctrine. But if it's to be reciprocal in any given social world, it has to be ethnic because it's linguistic. Second thing is communities have to retain some ethnic markers. That becomes, those markers are the principal elements of what we call a constitution. Third the community, the ethnic community, specifies the nature and function of duties, rights, rewards, and it's what distinguishes the nation from all other less comprehensive communities. Fourth, communities are different from one another because of their experience. 
in history and resources, social condition, economic life, geography, and they create different peoples, all, of course, partaking in the universal human nature. Fifth, of course, the distinguishing marks between native and foreign peoples. That aspect of human nature, which is universal, is being erased today for the abstraction of revolution. That's proof, though, knowing in and out groups, that's proof of the internal cohesion of the community, and hence there is no cohesion in the U.S. Six, communities exist only because of their traditions. These are basic foundational sentiments that serve as a context for anything, communication or otherwise. Now, traditions of political significance are means whereby peoples have maintained cohesion under strained circumstances. They're the infrastructure of security. Seven, membership is not the same as citizenship. Now, I, I, I remember writing this many, many, many years ago. Membership is different. It is more substantial than citizenship. When I say citizenship, I'm talking about it in its modern American sense. Membership is active. Citizenship, the way it's defined today, is not. You're a citizen of a country because you're born there. You're a member because you act. Membership implies a concrete relation, while citizenship is an abstraction, at least in, in post-modernity. Number eight, the opposite of nationalism is not internationalism. It's globalism and cosmopolitanism. It's an invention of empire and international capital. It's the most artificial and abstract of all social categories. There is no such entity as humanity, except if understood by human nature. But human nature is too general. It has to be manifest. Number nine, we talked about this with Hegel, and it's where I got it from. The isolated ego, believing itself free and autarkic, has of itself no conception of its responsibilities until it is incorporated into an ethnic unit. Of course, we're born into a, a, a social whole, um, and up until very recently, ethnicity was the center, because language is the center. Number 10, the community, the ethnos. It's not a government, but it does serve as a substratum upon which the state can construct its institutions. A government that does not come from that, the authentic tradition of the population, if it doesn't partake of that, it is then an imperial imposition, and it has no moral credibility. This is what representation is. Eleven, the community doesn't necessarily require a government, although for the most part, especially small states, small peoples, require some formalized mechanism to protect the integrity of the ethnos. It can be a necessary evil. When I was younger, I, I, I used to flirt with national anarchism, and I understand it, but I have moved away from that uh, more recently. Um, it can be a positive good, but at the very, at the very least, if it's, if it's basically healthy, it becomes a necessary evil. Number 12, tradition, in order for it to function, to be operative, has to be institutionalized in formal and informal organizations. Of course, the informal are far more numerous and important than the formal. And finally, a written constitution, you know, a constitution is not necessarily written, 
but it makes sense only if it reflects the historical experience of the community. So ethnic cohesion is extremely important. There is no abstraction. Ultimately, it's a, it's an, uh, uh, the Constitution is an abbreviation of the historical experience and the priorities that come out of it of a society that's manifest in its governing institutions. Now, there are many others I can add to this. But those are some of the more important elements as to why, and, and you know, it used to be just a common sense idea, now it has, has to be explained. Without ethnic cohesion, nothing happens. Whether you're independent or within an empire, the principle remains the same. Empires, remember, are not countries. They're two very different political forms. Countries can exist within empires. Again, that's international rather than its mirror image, you know, cosmopolitan. So as St. John says, and so many others, St. John of Kronstadt, so many in, in, in Serbia, Montenegro, the nation, the ethnos, is integral to the Orthodox faith. But, of course, that presents its own set of problems. And the relations between the Slavs and the Greeks over the centuries is, is a case in point. Now I'll talk about, if I get to it, the Philatist controversy. I have two lectures on it. I have papers on it. But suffice it for now to say that the hierarchy, the Greek-speaking hierarchy, denied the Bulgarian nation as they were throwing the Turks out of uh, the Balkans. But the Greek church sought to completely Hellenize the Balkans. That is to say, the Patriarchate. Now, there was no direct rule of Constantinople over Russia. Except indirectly, Russia was beyond the reach of Constantinople. But it seems that that patriarchate over the centuries tried to emphasize its sense of superiority and establish hegemony. And you know, I think, where I'm going here. It was really the political independence, and I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully, of the Russian state from whether it be the Byzantine or the, or the Turkish Empire, especially the latter, that made it possible for the Russian church to follow a path of subordinate and self-determination. The first very sharp conflict is in 1448, when the synod of Russian bishops, without any intercourse with the Greeks, due to the Florentine Union, elected a metropolitan St. Jonah. And Constantinople regarded this as a schism and in fact imposed an interdict on the entire Russian church. Uh, Constantinople then created a parallel metropolis in Lithuania, um, who I, which I don't think I've spoken of, Joseph Sultan, the metropolitan, uh, worth studying. Anyway, but afterwards, all subsequent bishops were elected independently. Of course, not recognized by Constantinople for a very long time. It was only in 1589 when the Greeks had no other choice but to admit the position of the first Russian patriarch, Job, St. Job. And it really was because of the slavery to the Turks which forced the Greeks to make these kind of concessions. So, but that's, that's, it's interesting, but it didn't have the, um, the powerful ethnic flavor of, of course, the old believers. The Greeks, 
the so-called patriarchs, none of them were actually real, or a few of them were, um, in the creation of the new right and the schism in, in Russia, ethnicity did play a role because the Greeks, uh, whether they be from the Middle East or North Africa, wherever they were, um, came to Russia and thanks to Nikon and Alexis, had a sense of their own superiority, despite having long since been deposed. Tsar Alexei Mihailovich regularly permitted, you know, it was a Grecophile like, like Nikon, permitted the, the, these, these men to intervene in the internal structure of the Russian church. The famous robber synod of 1666-1667, patriarchs of Alexandria and Antioch, uh, Paisios and Makarios, respectively, arrived, and they arrived at a sobor uh, specifically convened to condemn and anathematize the old right. Now, Greek hierarchs, because they were always in trouble, when they came to Russia, they praised Russian piety. But the minute that Grecophilia took over, everything changed. Now, the old believers, and myself personally, hold that the old Russian books remained fanatically identical, given the nature of, of the Russian church over the centuries, that that is a far better example of the ancient Greeks than the newer Greek books that did not match the older ones. Of course, the Greeks didn't have their own printing houses within the Turkish Empire, so they were printed in Italy um, by Latin and Greek unions and subjected to that kind of influence. So the old believers basically said, it's not, we don't have to verify our rights and texts to you. On the contrary, you have to do that with us. And then once Nikon didn't have his role anymore, his purpose anymore, they deposed him. And eventually turned on a lot of what he had created. He condemned the Greek patriarchs, accused them of heresy and, and, and deceit. And even went so far as to claim the churches that they helped create in Russia are without grace. Their authority, of course, didn't exist for a whole bunch of reasons. But they had long since been deposed, and, and they were not the actual patriarchs of the Caesar Metropolitans. As they went home, though, the Russian government made every effort to restore them to their cathedrals. Uh, in fact, an embassy was sent to Istanbul to, pers to persuade the sultan to return their titles. And, of course, it was done just like the Kievan metrop uh, metropolis reached by bribery. And that was really the only way that the Russian government legitimized the decisions of that infamous council. Was by paying to have these men. I mean, they paid for their seas in the first place, which everyone had to do at the time in, in uh, the Tukokratia. Um, So they paid to get them back. Uh, Grecophilism was something that kind of became fashionable in the reign of um, the great Zora Alexis. And there was a sense of just simply copying the Greeks and the myth that Russian Orthodoxy came from Constantinople rather than from Tarnovo in Bulgaria. Zorid, you know, we would call today, um, began to develop. But it was the late Byzantine order that was copied, not, not the ancient version. There's nothing wrong 
with a surge of Greek culture. I have my moments where I, I admire the, the, the true Greek tradition. But there's a big difference between late Byzantium and quote-unquote Greek books. Alexis did fantasize about uniting the entire Christian East under his authority, whereby he would free Constantinople from the Turks. This is why the unification of the full Eastern Rite was very important to him. It created a backlash, but that's the general conception. Now, the, the hierarchy was fraudulent, of course. The reform was, was doomed. And the only thing really that maintained them was the repressive government apparatus. The Nikonian reform actually weakened Grecophilism in within the, the, the Russian church. The renaming of the Russian church actually into the Greco-Russian, um, and you still see that in 19th century texts, um, it kind of created the impression that Grecophilism was the foundation of the Nikonian reform. Um... It was clear to everyone that as soon as that chimera of Greek superiority in, in ritual matters no longer is fashionable, no longer dominated the popular consciousness, there will be a collapse of Nikonianism. But if there's a collapse of Nikonianism, then the state will lose its ideological foundation, not to mention the imperial plans for the liberation of the Christian East, which is certainly laudable. And that's kind of why the church, after the effort was purged, uh, that's why the official church authority was forced to protect the ideological base of Nikonianism, despite the fact that he was deposed, that he had abandoned a see, that was the claim, and, and that he turned on his own, his own reform. Now, as I've written elsewhere, the Moscow Synod of 1666-1667 was an utter farce. About 50% of the bishops at the, at the council were Greek every one of whom was a subject and an agent of the Turkish Empire. So it didn't make any difference whether or not they were deposed, because they all had to buy their seeds at a very high price from the sultan or local Greek elites. And then they had to tax their subjects very heavily to repay the loan. Many families that remained behind after the migration to Hungary, many Serbs, for example, lived a priestless existence. Uh, the head of the uh, Zadruga took the place of the head of the local church in the Slava was the central yearly service. I said many years ago that, that I, mean, I submitted that those extended families had a healthier Orthodox life than the, the Fanar-imposed uh, bishops, such as they were. But those who came to Moscow they certainly were Simoniacs. They certainly were pro-Turkish. But they were also heavily involved with international trade. They were using their position in the Turkish state to engage in lucrative trade deals with Russia and Ukraine via the Black Sea. And I argued this, I'm going to argue it again. Um, the nature of the economic connection shows why the two ethnicities of, of, of Greek and Russian and then later, Greek and Bulgarian clashed 
in that infamous synod. If you read um, the book Ukrainian Economic History, Interpretive Essays, um, edited by um, I.S. Kropecki, um, there are two articles within it, Trade, uh, trade and Muscovite Policy Towards Ukraine and Petrine Mercantilist, po- uh, Mercantilist Policies Towards Ukraine. And they help flesh out the notion of, of where the Nikonian idea came from. Because Nikonianism, especially in the public mind, was Grecophilism, was Hellenization, where the old believers were heavily Russian. Everything Russian was banned under, under Nikon. It was, it was just as bad as under Peter, where anything Russian was, was banned in Petersburg. The adoption of the new Russian right was connected with Petrine colonial policies towards the South, you know, Russia and Ukrainian, especially the Ukrainian headman. These areas were extremely prosperous. There was a predatory Petrine plan that explains the Cossack revolt, especially that of Mazieppa, and also the importance of the old right merchant communities. And, of course, as many of you may be thinking, the eventual huge rebellions of Lotnikov, Razin, and Pugachev much later. Now, of course, economics is not fully able to explain this, but they tend to be ignored. Um, but there's a connection between Nikonianism and patronism, and that has an economic root. Remember, the New Right did filter through Ukraine from areas controlled by the Fanar and its organization in the Balkans. It's just one variable we're talking about here, but it's a very important one. There was a lot of trading going on prior to the 1666 synod between Ukraine and, and Russia. Merchants attached to the Hetmanate, merchants attached to Moscow did very well. But after 1635, the Russians began to fortify their southern border. But that also created new markets. These new noble servitors were attracting people. And they were sent to pacify the southern border with Ukraine and, and Poland and against the Turks, among others. Now, that did have the effect of harming trade between the two areas and maybe alarming the Greeks. It was necessary. The issues, one of the things between Greece and, and, and or the, I should say, Constantinople and Ukraine, were the questions of vodka and tobacco. The Greeks through the, uh, through the Black Sea were desperate to open Russia up to tobacco imports. Greeks were dispatched to Moscow to begin essentially a lobbying effort for free trade in some of these things. Um, tobacco was illegal in Moscow, and Ukrainian vodka was of the highest quality. But Muscovite policy was a strict monopoly over distilling rights. So the Greeks had other agendas at the time. There's every reason to believe that the Greco-Ukrainian movement to open Moscow for vodka and tobacco was underway prior to the 1666 Senate. But the movement of Russian military forces to pacify the border eventually put a stop to this, but other ways needed to be found. And the Cossacks under Bogdan Kimonetsky were in regular negotiations with the Ottomans and, and, and Greek merchants. But new markets developed because of the um, noble military forces that fortified the border. As the population grew, the price of Ukrainian grain went up. 
that assisted in the development of, of noble-based production and the you know, growth of the small landowner in, in Ukraine. One year before the Synod, so 1665, there was a meeting attended by dozens of Thanar and merchant-based Greeks uh, that led to a trade ban proclaimed from Tsar Alex, Alexei between Moscow and Ukraine. Part of this was because the tremendous production of Ukrainian grain to meet demand was forcing Rus- Russians from more northern regions out of business. They couldn't produce enough for a market in that harsh climate. They couldn't match the southern growing seasons or, or soil or anything else. The Ukrainians were maintaining a strong trade not just with Moscow, but with Germany, Poland, and the Anzianic League. It's not an accident that the Cossacks became the fighters for the old right. But by the time Tsar Alexis died, Ukraine was feeding Moscow. Vodka coming out of that area was superior to anything the, the Russians were making. They had a strong and prosperous hetman, largely based on smallholders, with uh, an increasingly settled agrarian Cossack aristocracy. They were challenging the Russian vodka monopoly, and Ukrainian grain was driving Russian grain uh, out of the market. The military servitors of the border, especially in the border of Ukraine, was forcing more and more production of grain, making higher profits for the hetmanate, both noble and non-noble. Now, the policy of the Russian government from 1667 on was to supply the soldiers at the border with cash to buy grain from Ukraine. But Ukrainian merchants, too, were also supplying the forces of Poland, Austria, Prussia, and Turkey. So Ukrainian prices were not coming down. The policy was to integrate Ukraine with Moscow in a trading bloc where Moscow would get the benefits while Ukraine would do all the work. Under Russian control, Ukrainian grain would be shifted from the Western trade to Russia alone. And this is what Peter did. There was an economic element to the new right sought to conform to uh, Greco-Ukrainian practice and in so doing, facilitate this trade block integration. The Greek bishops were always in debt because they had to pay for their seas, often outrageous sums, so they were always looking for ways to make money. There could be no doubt that money was a, a factor. So both Moscow and the Greeks were interested in integration of all of the East Slavic world. The Balkans was increasingly depopulated because you had the huge Serbian migration to Austria. Now, Ukrainian relay, the Hetman's, uh, Hetman's relationships with the Hansa, the Hanseatic League of Austria, didn't benefit the Greeks, but trade northward would, since it would be based on the Black Sea and the Greek merchant interests in grain speculation. You add to this the demand for more Russian financial assistance, the Greek bishops, they clearly had an economic motivation. And this is part of how the new right was justified and why all opposition was eliminated. Remember, too, that the Genoese had a strong dominance over the Black Sea trade. Greek merchants and the Italians were allies, at least for a while. And it was this Greco-Italian alliance that first printed the books that were to be used by Nikon. But these were the same financial adventurers who speculated on, on the Black Sea trade. And in their minds, it was only profitable for everybody if it was a 
integrated Russo-Ukrainian uh, unit. The Italians, once the Spanish crown defaulted on its debts, the Italians sought to recoup their losses in the competition between Russian and Ukrainian grain uh, growers. So much of the liquidity here came from Genoa. Um, and the Genoese state held that the Black Sea Ventures were the Republic's last attempt to remain dominant. Now, by the time the new right was promulgated, Russia controlled two rivers, the Black Sea, the Don, and the Dnieper. Now, Peter saw southern Russia, um, little Russia, as a, from the point of view of the colonial master. It's uncertain whether Peter thought Ukrainians were Russians at all. And, um, but of course, there were also old ritualist uh, Cossack holdouts with trade privileges that uh, the new Petrogradian state hated. Their destruction came after the Mazeppa disaster. Peter tortured his Cossack and old right opponents to death in the southern regions, and then, of course, installed all of his friends in the right bank Ukraine. So you have a double threat here. The Russian ethnos was being challenged by Peter. It was being challenged by the Hetmanet. Um, and the response was the adoption of the old right by the Cossack. That threatened Peter. People forget the Russophilia of so many Ukrainians right up until the early 20th century. Now, the Fanar did support Peter the Great because he was driving south, linking up Jewish and Greek trading interests in the beginning of the 18th century with the large and, and cosmopolitan Muscovite markets. Now, in 1701, Peter abolished the Patriarchate and took over all of its prerogatives. The Greeks immediately endorsed it. Now, Masonic activity among Greeks and Jewish merchant groups around Odessa, everywhere else in the Black Sea, saw Peter maybe as a brother. Um, and they were always very sycophantic towards, uh, towards him. Mazeppa, of course, was a gift to Peter in that he had he made an ill-advised alliance with Charles of Sweden, and that's how Peter was able to finally stop Ukrainian trade. And the Senate finally had a legal excuse to take all of that cash and wealth and give the Greeks what they've always wanted, a Russia essentially in the Black Sea. In fact, uh, Johann Osterman advised Peter to flood Ukraine with debased copper coinage to destroy its infrastructure. But Peter, very quickly after that, began to place restrictions on Ukrainian trade. It's kind of like uh, British restrictions on Irish trade a little bit later. Everything had to go through Russia, and it doesn't matter where they were headed. Russian merchants had to be approved by the Petrine state, and they flooded into the country. And in the head minute, all right merchants were banned from trading in Ukrainian goods in Ukrainian cities. The point was to break the old right merchant communities. This is how the Russian ethnos was being maintained. That was the, the old faith's uh, lifeblood. Destroying the Ukrainian economy would justify the new cosmopolitan European empire of Petrograd, where everything Russian was banned in this little utopian experiment. So that means 
Ukrainian grain and other products would be at the mercy of Russian demand. That is to say, Peter's demand. So the great products that Little Russia was creating became Russian state monopolies. That means thousands of merchants from the old ritual and the Hetmanate were destroyed. These merchant classes were not usurers, and certainly not the old believers. This is how they supported themselves without the state. In other words, the state ended up going to war with the Russian ethnos, as it happened many times afterwards. And the old right was the locus for it, the structures of survival of it, as I've turned them. Ukrainians had to, were forced to sell their product at low prices to uh, the Petrograd. It's something along the lines of the later Lenin uh, uh, grain requisition army. Exports abroad were prohibited. There was a list of goods that could not be imported into Ukraine by 1720. And the, the point was to destabilize the Ukrainian economy as a Russophile one. And this goes beyond anything that Nikon uh, wanted. This was a haven for the Russian old right, old ritual, the old believer. The Hetmanate was the repository of old Russian tradition. The synthesis of, of Kiev, Suzdal, Moscow. Their enemies were, of course, the Fanar in Petersburg. Well, and, and Genoa. They were integrating the littoral of the Black Sea under, under, under uh, Peter's dominance. Now, the point was to eliminate any separatism from the Hetmanate. And he wanted to crush the witness of the old right, the Russian ethnos, in southern Russia, where it had fled, where the state did not function other than the Hetmanate itself. But the Nikon Alexis Petrine revolutions were of a single type. And the source was to capture the trade of southern Russia, and in so doing, have the material base to create what Peter wanted, a pagan European empire. With the old right firmly in place, the Greeks would remain in their second, uh, second place position, subject to the Turks and, and the Fanar. The new right placed Greeks as arbiters of Russian piety and the Russian tradition. That means Greek merchants will take advantage of this, this centralization, and begin reaping profits from the Ukrainian trade safely in Muscovite and eventually Petrogradian new right hands. Uh, I don't think anyone has argued this in the past, but the connection, I think, is quite clear. Um, the Petrine system was a criminal one for a whole bunch of reasons. The abolition of the patriarchate was part of the totalitarian tendency in the Petrine agenda. Like Janus, the pagan god, Peter becomes lord of heaven and earth, uh, dictating to the now headless church his modernizing and enlightenment agenda. By the beginning of the 19th century, everything was being done in Latin, at least in the cities. Peter represented the force for cosmopolitanism and Freemasonry over the old Russian tradition. The old Russian tradition, of course, either fled into the forest, as the old believers did, or fled to the southern steppe. Peter was at war with the monastics. The monastic population went from 25,000 to 14,000. Their lands were stolen. 
um, and bishops that resisted were tortured on the rack. Theophan Prokopovich um, gave him six names of bishops that were tortured for criticizing the abolition of the patriarchate. And after Peter's death, the successors, really essentially an oligarchy at that point, continued this policy. It was a revolutionary doctrine. Old Russia yet again was victimized. Victimized, of course, uh, uh, under Lenin and everyone else. And revolutions tend to be abstract, tend to be based on empire, forced labor, the very city itself of Petrograd. Now, there's some who argue that the Russian Patriarchate, at its worst, came from the late Byzantine, based on their legislation and practice. Um, if Rome, the old Rome fell away, then the fifth sea in the Pentarchy was Russia. One of the things that came from Grecophile thought was the concept of the papacy from Italy and, and elsewhere. Nikon was extremely ambitious. He was arrogant. He was crude. He had all the appropriate qualities for what he wanted his office to become. Russian papism had an apologist there. The church rule over the state. Nikon demanded that all clergy obey him as a voice of God. He proclaimed an infallibility. Nikon saw old Moscow as, as abnormal. He took the title Great Sovereign, not only placing himself as an equal of the Tsar, but even implying supremacy over him. And Alexis went along, being a Grecophile, and to some extent being a student of, um, of the Patriarch uh, himself. Nikon actually used the donation of Constantine and other forgeries that the Latins used, that Pope Innocent III used, who died in 1216, to establish himself. Unconditional primacy. He used the example of the sun and moon. The patriarchate is the sun, the state, or the so-called secular power is the moon. It doesn't have its own light. It simply reflects light from elsewhere. This is also an, the result of the clash of Greek and Russian. Uh, Zenkovsky, who wrote the excellent uh, history of Russian philosophy, here's what he has to say about it. In Nikon's interpretation of church authority and its superiority over the power of the king, Nikon completely departed from the Byzantine and Russian traditions of the authorities, the symphony, and completely came to the point of view of the Catholic Church, as it was in the 11th to the 13th centuries, during the struggles with emperors uh, over investiture. He almost literally repeated the arguments for papal power when he wrote that since kings receive the anointing from bishops, thus receiving power from the church, they are lower and weaker in their dignity uh, and spiritual strength than the bishops. He wore a papal tiara. But the Grecophilism, because it was an unnatural, you know, again, this late date, this corrupt growth, not the you know, late Greece, especially in Italy, was was corrupted by the Fanar. Not Greek itself, but um, because it was an unnatural clashing, Nikon was its product. 
Nikon was, was extremely proud. He used insults and physical violence to establish himself. He was rude. He was directly offensive to bishops. His theory was that the patriarch was Christ, an image of Christ, and the bishops are the apostles, which is precisely, and the lower clergy, like the 70 apostles. The patriarch is an image of Christ. The notion of first among equals had no place with him. But he went much further than his Byzantine predecessors. The patriarchs were successors, not of, not of Christ personally, but of the apostles. He did not recognize other bishops as brothers or peers. The position of the clergy under Nikon, this so-called fighter for the independence of the church, was far harsher than any of his, his predecessors. Clergy were insignificant. They are creatures of the patriarchal. Now, I bring all of this up based on the fact that it is the result of one ethnic group seeking, a corrupted one, seeking to dominate another. Grecophilism had a lot to do with the new right, and that spilled over into the economic interests of unifying um, the Eastern Slavic world, which would then give uh, Greek merchants extraordinary power. You know, Nikon would beat those he disliked. Not to mention enriched himself. Um, appropriation of the the you know, lands of peasants who he converted quickly into, into serfs. But that was the same as the image of the ritual and liturgical reform, which were installed exclusively through violence. So the Greeks were pursuing only selfish goals and encouraged Nikon to curse Russian antiquity. Um, Bishop Paul of um, Kolomenskoy, who of course was uh, one of the few who opposed um, Nikon, became a fool for Christ's sake, as I think I mentioned last week, the protest that he was beaten to death, and after that, no one would challenge him. Of course, Peter and his successors purged the church many times. Tsar Alexei realized that he was a big mistake. The Tsar's authority was dissolving. Nikon, claiming to be the sovereign, didn't bring any benefit to the state. Nikon's rule did not lead at the end to the rise of spiritual authority, but just the opposite. And of course, he was eventually deposed anyway by the same Greeks that he had invited in. Peter, of course, learned lessons of the past and destroyed the patriarchate entirely. The destruction of subordinates. He was the mirror image of Nikon. And they had the one thing in common, that there could only be one power. And those opposing him are evil, they're not just wrong. The opposite of the Petrine state in, 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 in Petrograd was the Hetmanate and the old right that it eventually adopted. The synod that Peter created was a, a tool of secular state power and secularism in general. 
the over-procurator was the, the go-between of the state and the church itself. Autocratic power, Article 43 of the basic state law says, in the administration of the church, autocratic power acts through the most holy governing synod established by it. It's almost a, a collective papism. They started using um, Eastern phrases like um, beloved brother of Christ or holy master, things like that, um, which were not heard before. Now, whether or not the Petrine Synod came from Sweden or whether it came from the so-called transient synods of, of, of late Byzantium, where whoever was in the area, kind of random hierarchs, uh, who were long-term residents in Constantinople, ruled the church, uh, simply by being present, having nothing to do, of course, with the conciliar idea. So, while ethnicity and economics are two important variables, they're not the only ones. Ethnicity, though, um, was the class of Grecophilism on the one hand, and the old right Russians uh, and the Hetman on the other. They were allies. Too many old believers were fleeing to them. They became firmly, I mean, without, without, you know, ceasing to be royalist, became, um, the, the locus of the Russian nationalist opposition to Peter and his successors straight up until Alexander the, the first, or I should say St. Paul. Now, I actually did two lectures, as some of you know, on philatism. It's yet another example of the confrontation of Greek, late Greek, and Slavic. Of course, the patriarch in Constantinople was, was highly compromised. I don't have to go through that again. The hierarchy was backed by that district in Istanbul known as the Fanar. The end of the 16th century, it kind of took, took shape. Their usury had invaded the church completely. They called themselves the Archons of the Greek people. Built their homes there, and they became a very alienated group of people. The church was governed for their benefit. It became a business investment rather than an actual religious body. The ethnic connection here was the Hellenization of the Balkans. And this is what caused the so-called Bulgarian schism in, in 1872. Uh, but as early as the 1850s, the Bulgarian church was already feeling this. This anger at the, the Greek-speaking elite. This isn't, you know, classical Greece or Byzantine. This is, this is a much later debased Greek usurers. And so many Bulgarians saw the Greeks as an extension of Turkish rule. But they had to pay archons back with interest. Of course, the bishops that had to buy their seats had to pay them back. Hence, Taxation, and this is why the 1872 Synod condemned the Bulgarians. This was a, a financial matter. The decision, of course, came with a bribe, like, like everything else that happened at the time. Um, at the beginning of that Synod, the Greek state sent 3,000 what with the equivalent of 3,000 British pounds to Patriarch Anthemius to reject the Exarchate. The Jerusalem Patriarch, as Cyril II, refused to accept the decision of the council, broke off communication with the Fanar, 
Antioch would not make it public. I think they accepted it in theory. Patrick of Alexandria loudly rejected the decisions of the 1872 Synod, accusing the Patriarchate of, of functioning solely from financial motives. Same for the Romanian and, Ser- and Serbian churches, rejected philatism as a heresy. But most importantly, the Russians did too. And they never broke communion with, with the Exarchate. The Russian delegation in Istanbul, um, despite trying to remain neutral, ultimately took the Bulgarian side. Even St. John Maximovich. Um, well, let, me, let me quote him directly here. What did St. John say? Now remember what he said above. He says, The ecumenical patriarch had received from the Turkish sultan, even before the taking of Constantinople by the Turks, the title of the head of the Greek ethnos, and he was considered the head of the whole Orthodox population of the Turkish Empire. This did not prevent the Turkish government from removing patriarchs for any reason whatsoever and calling for new elections and collecting a large tax from the newly elected patriarch. In order to make up the sum that he paid on his accession to the patriarchal throne, a patriarch made a collection from the metropolitan subordinate to him, and they, in their turn, collected from the clergy subordinate to them. This manner of collecting money to repay loans left an imprint on the whole order of the patriarch's life, almost always, the Episcopal sees were filled by Greeks, even though in the Balkan Peninsula the population was primarily Slavic. They bought their offices. There was 15,000 ducats, uh, currency at the time, for the Patriarchate. And a regular yearly sum was required to keep their, their seat. So the Patriarch would then sell his signature for lower appointments for, for money. Um, I mean, some of these so-called, you know, it's, it's very rare that we could even name some of these people. They weren't religious at all in some cases. They were bought and sold monastic offices too. It's taxation having to pay the usurers back. This is why the Slavs revolted. So we have clashes that stress the ethnic element here. It wasn't as if Constantinople was imposing some abstraction on the Balkans. It was imposing their much later degenerate Greek Thanar understanding of the world onto the Balkans by by a secular um, group of investors. The Bulgarians and the Slavs in general were exploited by these bishops who had no right to their seas. Um, It was a business investment. And the Exarchate was a reaction Archbishop Makarios uh, Bulgak of Lithuania wrote an article in 1873 uh, condemning that synod, and so-called heresy, uh, philatism. And he came out and just said the Greek patriarch needs to recognize the firman of the reigning sultan as quite legitimate, and Bulgaria has every right to full ecclesiastical independence. That's what was denied in 1872. It was a, a, a plea from the Thanar community to maintain their taxing privileges and ecclesial investments. It had nothing to do with the church, nationalism, or anything else. Their motives were transparent. The Hungarian exarchate was a reaction to usury. So whether you talk about the Florentine Union as a clash, not a direct clash, of the very late... Um, uh, Byzantine Empire and its successors with Russia. The Russians began, you know, electing their own bishops as a result. 
and then, you know, nationalizing the church, so to speak, it became much clearer uh, in with Nikon and the very strange chimera of this Grecophile uh, imposition on Russia and the condemnation. And the condemnation of the old right led to an influx of Russians to the steppe. And, um, and of course, the increasing prosperity of the hetman. I've dealt with that many times elsewhere. Now, the economic stuff we talked about was, again, another sort of globalist project to integrate all of these units so the only two victors would be the Greeks, or the Italians by extension, and um, the Moscow state, and then later on, the Petrogradian state. And this was really a Petrine project. It was, it was hatched under Alexis and Nikon, but Peter was able to bring it to fruition. And of course, free trade certainly wasn't the issue, since most trade was banned if it enriched the, um, if it enriched the, uh, the headman which he attempted to do uh, to destroy. It was Catherine that destroyed the um, uh, Zaporozhian Sikh and hence smashed uh, Cossack independence and hence a, a tremendous source of money and support for the old right. The point of all of this, no matter how we look at it, is that um, ethnicity plays a role in all of this. And that's not a problem. You're always going to have problems like this. But ethnicity is was being challenged by a degenerating cosmopolitanism. The old believers said, you know, we're not talking about the ancient Byzantine Empire, the ancient canons. We're talking about unit books published after, long after the fall of, of Constantinople and heavily connected to the unions. And it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century where this was reversed. They started, you know, I mean, Nikon banned the, the creation of, of churches with, with uh, Russian domes. Only the old believers were, were doing that. The integration of this region economically was a means to empower the Fanar in the state over what amounted to rebel groups and that was expressed in Razin and Pugachev much later. All of these had an ethnic component and whether it be political or theological the old believers were right. You know, we take a, you know, a moderate stance there but they were right. And it goes back to the creation the understanding of a nation this reciprocity and membership it's impossible under the oligarchy of the Fanar or the pagan dictatorship of, of Petrograd or the dictatorship of, of Nikon. It was to be found in this reciprocity, the subordinist, which some call collegiality, that the Russian church specialized in. Thank you, everyone, for listening again. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.